everybody. It is good to see you, good to be with you today. Um, I was just thinking to myself, I've got the best job in the world. <laughs> I really do. I love reading about theology. I love studying God's Word, and it's great to have a church family that has an appetite for that, right? Um, so it's just great to be together. Appreciate y'all um, each week. Um, we are in a series looking at the parables of Jesus, and we started this back in, I think, June or July took a little break to consider Solomon for a little while, and then jumping back in it now. And we're down to the second to last parable. Uh, so we're about ready to wrap this up, and then we'll be doing something for Easter. I'm not sure yet what. But uh, anyhow, today we come to the parables, uh, or the parable of the talents. And I've got a slide for you here. This shows a breakdown of this parable. I'm trying to prolong this series as much as I can. So what I'm doing here is I'm going to split this one into two sermons. So... Um, uh, I told the guys this morning, I was, I've been a little long-winded lately. I don't know if anybody was aware of that or not. But anyhow, um, that's what mothers are for, right? I, I hear about it. So uh, in any case, uh, the parable of the talents, you can break this up into three parts. And so what we're going to do today is take a look at parts one and two. The first part establishes the plot. That's what we're going to read here in just a few moments. And then the second part establishes uh, this, the, or introduces us to these two characters and what happens with them, um, the, who the Bible calls these good and faithful servants. And then the last piece, which is what we're going to look at next week, is where Jesus interacts with um, who the Bible calls the wicked servant or the slothful servant. So we'll take a look at him next week. But our parable for today, again, is a parable of the towns. We're just going to read the first five verses there, which establish the plot, and then we'll walk through those verses together. So I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Again, we do this week in and week out. Just be reminded that this is where truth comes from, right? Uh, that uh, the opinions that we hear all week long and all the things that are kind of incoming on us, that sometimes we just need to hit the reset button and be reminded that, hey, look, there's a truth that, out, that trumps all of those other sources, and so we stand week in and week out to be reminded of that. Let's read together Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the talents, beginning at verse 14. Here we go. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Verse 17. So also he had two, two talents more. Verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. All right, you may be seated. Very good. Um, all right, so let's take a look at these verses together. Before I, before I jump in here, let me just say that what we're going to hear today is Jesus inviting the substance of your life to be of eternal consequence. That's the invitation that Jesus is giving. Jesus wants for your life to have eternal consequence, okay? So that's what we're going to hear. Let's take a look at this verses together. Verse 14 it says, uh, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. In this story, there is a property owner. Again, Jesus is studying the plot here. There's a property owner. Um, and we'll learn here in just a few moments, this is a guy of tremendous wealth. In Jesus' story, this man is also referred to as the master. He makes plans to go away, to leave home, and he's going to be gone for quite a while. So he's going to go on a journey. And so Jesus' original audience, they would have heard that, and they would have thinking, okay, well, he's going to be gone for several months. I mean, this is not just a, I'm going to go to Disney for the weekend, I'll be back at work on Monday. This is, he's going to be out of town for quite a while. Um, and so that's what the homeowner does. He um, finds some folks to look after his belongings, look after his businesses, his property, while he's out of town. 
The word that's translated there in verse 14 is the Greek uh, that servants is the Greek word doulos, and it literally means slave. Now I got a slide for you here. We'll talk about this word here for a few moments. Uh, the word slave for us is a loaded term culturally, right? Just because we're Americans and we can remember antebellum slavery and all that sort of thing. Antebellum slavery was forced labor. It was an evil practice. It was an inhumane practice. It was an abusive practice. It diminished uh, the value of human life. But in the first century, in much of the ancient world, slavery was of a different form than antebellum slavery. It's what's called indentured servanthood. Indentured servanthood means that a shop owner, a business owner, or a landowner would contract with somebody to work for them for a number of years. Usually it was about seven to as much as ten years. And that person would then provide the labor or the workforce for that particular business or for that particular landowner. And in exchange, the landowner would, offer, would give them food, would give them housing, would give them clothing, all the essentials of life. And in addition to that, they would also teach that person a trade. So if you go to work for a blacksmith, you're going to learn blacksmithing, for example. And so every day you'd come into work and you'd Maybe you didn't know anything about blacksmithing when you got started, but every day when you come into work, you start pounding on hot iron, and you learn the blacksmithing trade over the course of the coming years. Now, after seven to ten years of that, again, you become very proficient in that trade, such that the slave, now at the end of their contract, is prepared to go out and start their own blacksmithing business um, and hire their own slaves. Basically, slavery in Jesus' day was the technical school right, was a technical school of the ancient world. It's where people learned the trades of blacksmithing or shoemaking or whatever it may have been, and that's how those were passed along. Historians tell us that about half of the citizens in the Roman Empire were indentured servants. Think about that. Half, or half of the Roman Empire, the population, were indentured servants. People lived in this sort of estate. Some of them would re-up their contracts after the seven years or ten years had gone by, and they would do that year over year over year. Uh, but others would go on to start their own businesses. Doctors were indentured servants. Um, accountants were indentured servants. Engineers were indentured servants, as well as blacksmiths and people of all walks of life, learning all sorts of skills and trades. Again, this is how much of the labor force of the first century of the ancient world was organized. Now, there are some scholars, um, and I just want to say ignorant, okay, ignorant scholars who say that Jesus, by using the example of a slave in his story, is condoning slavery, and so therefore Jesus can't be trusted. Now, if they would just pick up, you know, Google, right, ancient slavery, they would learn that, hey, look, the antebellum form of slavery is not what Jesus is advocating for here. It was a different form of slavery. It was a practice of contractual, voluntary work uh, that was observed in the ancient world. But again, you know, some folks are just want to be skeptics, right? Some folks just are working through an agenda, right? They're trying to find reasons to poke holes in your faith and your confidence in Jesus. But again, just a little bit of historical background would resolve all of those issues. All right, back to verse 14. Um, I don't want us to miss the fact, the reason I go through all this in part, is because I don't want us to miss the fact that three of the four main characters in this story are slaves. Three of the four main characters in the story are doulos. Three of the four main characters in the story have signed on the dotted line. They've committed themselves to go to work for the master. Jesus' first century, first century audience would have intuitively understood the contractual nature of that relationship. 
Um, they would have understood there was expectations of responsibility. There were expectations of productivity that go along with being one of these indentured servants. If you're not interested in doing what the master expects, then don't sign on the dotted line. Right? Don't enter into this voluntary agreement, this voluntary um, arrangement relationship with him. If you do, if you do sign the contract, then you need to be prepared to go to work for your master. Your life is not your own now. Your time is not your own now, right? Your energies, your, 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 your skills, your daily agenda is all determined by that master. Your priorities become his priorities. Now, in verse 14, it says that the master called his servants, or do lost slaves, and entrusted to them his belongings. I think it is safe to assume that in this story that the master... Um, this is not the first day on the job for these slaves. This is not the first day on the job for these servants. Um, this master has obviously spent considerable time already teaching them whatever trade he's leaving them in charge of, teaching them what, whatever business that he's left them in charge of. Um, because why would he go out of town for a long period of time and leave it in charge of some three-year-olds, right? <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't do that at your own house, right? You wouldn't say, well, I'll, I'll be back, kids, in next week right? Because the house would be a mess and things would fall apart. And so the master would never do that. It wouldn't, he wouldn't allow things to devolve into a mess. So this master is likely invested himself deeply into the lives of these slaves. Now, before we go any further, let me do just a little bit of preliminary application. You say, Gordon, interesting story. Jesus is talking about this parable. Okay, I get it. But what difference does any of that make to my life? Well, um, let's remember who Jesus is talking with. He's sharing this story with the disciples. That's who's engaging with him. This is probably on Tuesday. He'll be on the cross on Friday morning. And so Jesus knows that he literally has a limited number of days between when he's with them right now and when he's not going to be with them any longer. And so he's going to be leaving them soon. And so when he leaves, these guys are going to be left in charge of the mission. What difference does that make to your life and to mine? Well, when those disciples whom Jesus left in charge eventually passed themselves... They had to pass the baton on to somebody else, to more disciples down the line, to the next batch of disciples, to the next batch of disciples, to you and I. Here we are, years later, the baton's been passed to you and I. It's been handed off to us. We stand in the successive line of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And let me give you a little tease here, because when we stand in the successive line of disciples... The next generation have had this message passed off to us. We are always just one generation away from this message becoming extinct from the earth, right? I mean, literally, if we don't get it right, pass it along correctly, we are just literally one generation away from losing, from, from the message of the gospel dying at our feet. And I know the same can be said for any religion. I know the same can be said for any value system or any worldview. I get that. Um, but again, if the present generation doesn't pass these things along, then whatever it is that we're supposed to be passing along, it'll die with us. And that's just a cold, hard fact. Verse 15 says, uh, To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Let's talk about that word talent in that verse. The English word that is translated talent could be a number of things. We think of the word talent, we think of somebody who can sing really well, right? America's got talent. 
We think of um, somebody who maybe they're a really good ball player. Uh, they're a really good athletic ability. They got a lot of athletic talent. Maybe we think of somebody who has a talent for math. Never had that talent. Uh, maybe they're, they're, there's all kinds of different talents. Some people have the talent of selling stuff, right? They got the sales gene. Other people have the investing gene. Some people can build things really well. Again, didn't get that one. But again, all of those are different kinds of talents. But the word that is translated talent in English comes from the Greek term talanton. And a talanton or talent in the ancient world had nothing to do with innate ability. It was not referring to some skill that a person was born with. Rather, the word talanton is referring to um, a unit of measurement. This is a weight. And it was usually associated with precious metals like gold, silver, or copper. A lot of scholars believe that this passage is talking about a talent of silver. Um, in this scenario, the talent is in view, again, is silver. Uh, and that would have been equal to, I think I got a slide on this. Yeah, we got a slide on this. I think, hopefully, yeah, yeah, that's the right slide. All right, so it was equal to about 100 pounds of silver. That's what a talent was. You know, when I first read this, I thought to myself, okay, well, the master gave him like 20 bucks, right? And then the guy that got the five talents, he multiplied it by five. He got 100 bucks. That is nowhere close to the amount of money that this, or the value of what this master leaves these fellows in charge of. Um, to the first one, he gave 100 pounds of silver, um, entrusting him with, which would have been the equivalent of, an average worker's, the equivalent of 20 years' wages. That's amazing. To the, second, or to the second servant who got the two talents, multiply that out. That's the equivalent of 40 years' wages, 200 pounds of silver. He says, hey, you're in charge of this. And to that first servant with the five talents, 500 pounds of silver, the equivalent of 100 years of wages for an average worker. I mean, that was a small fortune that he just set this guy in charge of. One commentator calculated how much money that would be by today's standards. Go ahead and hit that next slide. And here's the number that he came up with, $1,977,600. Now, that was the commentator wrote that book 20 years ago, so you've got to figure some inflation. So we're talking about millions, literally millions of dollars that this master just hands over to these three servants and says, here's what you're entrusted with. This is what you're in charge of. Remember who Jesus is talking to again. He's talking to his disciples, and he's telling them, like this master, I'm going to be going away be gone for a really long time. And when I do, when I do come back, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you all in charge of this massive responsibility of sharing the good news about me with the rest of the world. That is, again, going to fall on your shoulders. All right, let me paraphrase what happens next. Servant number one, with his five talents, invests the money. He ends up doubling the original investment. Servant number two, with his two talents, also invests his money and also doubles the original investment. Servant number three, whom we will dive into next week, buries his money in the ground. And what happens when you bury your money in the ground? You grow a money tree, of course, right? <laughs> it's not what, all what happens. What ends up happening is that money, it was preserved, but it doesn't grow, right? It just, it, he took his hundred pounds of silver, he stuck it in some place in the ground, and that's where it was. It's just there. It doesn't grow or mature or anything. When the master returns, verse 20... It says, he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And then notice the master's response, verse 21. Master said to him, well done, right? Good and faithful servant. That's awesome. I mean, you took 500 pounds of silver 
and you doubled it. That's incredible. That's a tremendous return on investment. Something, or same thing happens with servant number two. He brings his good report, having doubled the original investment. The master says to him also, verse 23, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. All right. Again, because we're going to beat the Baptist to lunch, right? We're going to stop right there. And we're going to uh, get to come, out, come back to the rest of it next week. But uh, that means it's time for us to stop and ask the question we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make? to my life? Well, that's a good question. I want to see if we can answer that. You know, I grew up in a local church, and I can remember hearing my grandmother say, I can remember hearing other church members say, when I get to heaven, the thing I most want to hear, that I'm looking to hear, is for Jesus to tell me, well done, my good and faithful servant. You ever remember hearing people saying that as you're growing up? Certainly that's something that we want to hear as well. But I can definitely remember, folks, as I was coming up through of age, people saying, you know, that's, that's, that's where I want my life, how I want my life to be lived, such that when I come to that point and I'm standing before God, I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, if that's the desire of your heart, again, I hope that it is, then there are some principles that are reported to us here in this parable that will set our lives on a course to hear those words when we stand before Jesus. I uh, just got two for you today, okay? Principle number one, if I want to hear those words when I get to heaven, principle number one is we need to make Jesus the master of our life. Make Jesus the master of our life. You know, Jesus uses the example of a slave for a reason. Um, remember, he's talking to his disciples, he's instructing his disciples, and so he's referring to them, his disciples, as slaves, as doulos. Friends, this is, the, um, this is the nature of the relationship that Jesus wants to have with his followers. He's the master, we are the doulos, the slave, the servant. Um, Jesus wants to be our master. He wants us to confess him as Lord. But the flip side of that is that it's possible for us to get to the place of hearing, or it's impossible for us to get to the place of hearing well done until we have surrendered ourselves to the lordship of Christ, until we have said to him, hey, look, you are my master. You are in control of the breath that I take and of the direction of my life. Um, years ago, I went on a trip to Korea. It was part of my schooling, part of our training. And um, I went to this place called Prayer Mountain in Korea, and it was a retreat center. Obviously, it was on a mountain. And uh, I remember while I was there, I, I had just come out of six years as a youth pastor in South Georgia, and it was a transition year for me uh, and our family because I was in school and I was doing my residency stuff. But I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, um, I didn't know what was next. We were just a handful of months before to get kicked out in the cold, right, and have to go figure out life and the next steps for, for our family. Finally, um, I, so I get to this prayer closet at the apex of the building, and I'm up there, and I'm praying with the Lord, and I'm speaking with him, and I'm sharing different things with him, talking about the different options that we are considering uh, when it comes to what's that next step for us and our family. Uh, finally, after a lot of back and forth um, and a lot of uh, me kicking the proverbial tires, finally the Lord said to me, Gordon, do you think you can run your life better than me? And friends, that stopped me dead in my tracks. And it stopped the wheels of rationalization. And it stopped me from talking to the Lord and set me on a 
place of just saying, okay, I'm going to listen. Like, you've got some things, obviously, you need to say to me, and so I'm just going to listen. And instead of me trying to put my human wisdom to it, I simply said, Lord, you know what? My life is right back in your hands. My life belongs to you. And I'll go where you want me to go, and I'll follow where you lead. Jesus, I want for you to be the master of my life. And friends, I have never regretted that decision. Why? Because God can do a better job of running your life than you can. Notice that all of the New Testament writers refer to themselves as slaves or doulos of Jesus Christ. In the opening lines of his letter to Titus, Paul writes Titus chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul a servant, <clears throat> a servant or doulos of God. James, a guy who definitely had a reason to brag, he was the brother of Jesus, and he could have gone around spouting that out and telling everybody, hey, I'm Jesus' brother, I'm nice to meet you, I'm Jesus' brother. But that's not the way that James defined his relationship with Jesus or saw himself. Instead, he writes, James chapter 1 and verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter introduces himself this way, Simon Peter a servant, the word doulos there, a servant or slave, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the way that great men and women of God view themselves. My life does not belong to me. Right? I'm going to let you run things down here for me. Um, they would, these great men and women of God would agree with Paul when he writes 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. The end of verse 19 there, he says, you are not your own. Your life doesn't belong to you. Why? Because you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Principle number one, if we want to hear those words, well done, and we all do, we've got to establish Jesus as the master of our lives. You know, there are a lot of people who confess Jesus as Lord. There are a lot of people who have looked to him for the forgiveness of their sins, and I believe because of that confession, they will be in heaven. But Jesus does not have a hand on the wheel of their life. And because of that, they will not hear those words. Well done. Principle number one, make Jesus the master, the Lord of your life. Uh, principle number two, my only other point today, is to be productive for Jesus. Be productive for Jesus. Notice in Matthew 25, verses 16 and 17, notice what the two good and faithful servants do immediately upon receiving these uh, talents, these, this charge. It says in verse 16, he who had received the five talents went away at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Now contrast that with the fellow who dug the hole in the ground and put his 100 pounds of silver in the ground. Jesus is not thrilled with that guy. We learn that Jesus goes on to say of him, he defines him or labels him, verse 26, as a wicked and slothful servant. What is Jesus trying to communicate through this parable? Well, it's quite simple. He wants us to be productive for him. I mean, the point of this parable is about taking the time that we have, taking the skills that we have, taking the resources of our life and leveraging those, putting those to work for the Lord Jesus. Now that raises a very sincere and serious, kind of serious question of, well, what does productivity look like? 
right? I, I asked myself, been asking myself that question all week as I've been thinking and preparing for this. Well, what, what is it exactly that Jesus is looking for? He's telling me to be productive. I get that. Hey, I've given you some talent. Do with those. Well, okay, well, what does that look like? Does it mean that everywhere I go, that I need to be sharing Jesus with people? Is that what this is? To be, I need to become some sort of a hyper-evangelist and become an annoying Christian, right? Everywhere I go, I'm like, hey, hey, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And to the point that people are like, I really don't even want to be around that person, right? Is that what Jesus is inviting us to? Not even close. Not even close. That's not what this means. Remember, Paul teaches us that not all believers are gifted the same way. Paul writes Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We want to be productive with the gifts that God has given us. Um, verse 7, for example, if service, then be productive in serving people. It also says if prophecy, then be productive in prophecy. A prophet is not somebody who's going around predicting the future. The gift of prophecy is the ability to walk into a room and go, this is what's wrong. That's prophecy. That's the gift of prophecy. And so if prophecy, then do that. Go into the room, analyze what's wrong, and share that with leadership. Um, if serving is your thing, then walk into the room and serve. Get, to, get busy serving. Let your hands serve. He says in verse 7, um, also, he's, or, I'm sorry, in verse 8, or, yeah, verse 7, he says if your gift is teaching, then teach. In other words, if you have the ability to illuminate the minds of young people and the, the minds of older of adults and older adults, if your ability is that to illuminate them to the truth of Scripture, then, then that get busy teaching, get busy studying, and share those things with people. Verse 8, the one who exhorts, that means that you have the gift of encouragement. Like a moth to a flame, you actually, or you naturally see people who are despondent. Maybe they are grieving. Maybe they are going through a tough time. And you have the ability to walk into a room and lift the spirits of the people who are there. You have the ability to bring encouragement. I know I had somebody years ago that said she had the gift of discouragement. I'm like, that's not exactly a spiritual gift. But in any case, if you have this gift of exhorting, of giving encouragement, then you walk into the room and you encourage, you use the gift. You be productive with how God has uniquely wired you and gifted you. Still in verse 8, the one who contributes, we're talking here about finances, you simply love to write checks. I mean, that is just your thing. You, you find financial needs in the community, people, families that are struggling, areas that are missions that you want to give to, and you help those people. If God has given you a heart to give like that, then be faithful with the gift that God has given you. Be on the lookout for opportunities to give, be productive with the gift that God has given you. Still in verse 8, if God has gifted you with leadership, then lead and do so with zeal. And finally, end of verse 8, the one who does acts of mercy. That means that you're somebody who notices people in need and your heart is moved deeply. When you see these kids who are going to be at the All Abilities Camp and you're just like, I got to be there. I, I see these kids who don't have that kind of opportunity like other kids may do, and I want to get involved, and I want to be there, and I want to encourage those kids, and I want to hug those families who are going to be there as well and encourage them. And so if your gift is, um, is showing acts of mercy, then you get involved, you find needs, and, uh, and you jump in. And it says do it with a cheerfulness in your heart. So what does productivity look like? Well, it's the opposite, for sure, of burying your gift. 
We, we, we can definitely agree on that, right? It's the opposite of burying your gift. That's not, that's not productivity. The flip side of that means putting the gifts to work that the Lord Jesus has uniquely wired you with. And secondly, uh, productivity, what does it look like? It looks different for you than it looks for me. I mean, God has unique things that he wants to accomplish through your life, unique things that, again, he's wired you to do, and we need to be productive with those ways that we're uniquely wired. One last thought, and I'm going to wrap up with this. You know, I challenged y'all last week at the close of the service to be praying and to be seeking God's voice over the course of the next four or five weeks. We're in the same season of Lent. We're working our way toward Easter. Easter is on March the 31st this year. I believe that's right. Um, and so I'm asking you, again, to be deliberate in listening. To use this as a season where you're deliberately spending additional time reading God's word, allowing the truth of God's word to penetrate your heart. Deliberate in preparing yourself to say yes to your master. Allowing yourself and your heart to be touched and moved and prepared to say, hey, you know what, Lord, if you're asking me to help out with all abilities camp, and we're going to be rolling out stuff over the course of the next three or four weeks and saying, hey, here's some ways, doesn't have to be the way, but here are some ways that you can get plugged in, how you can use the gifts, and maybe, just maybe, God is going to use one of these things, and he's inviting you to participate in it, and he's asking you to say yes. So we want to spend the next three to four weeks corporately as a church body preparing ourselves to say yes to the Lord. Friends, I promise you, when you say yes to God, it will be a decision you will never, ever, ever regret because he can do a much better job of running your life than you or I possibly could. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us today from your word. We're thankful so much, Lord, for your great wisdom, how you understand us. Lord, and you do call us to live lives of eternal consequence. We're hearing that in this story. Lord, you're inviting us to make a difference in this world, one that brings you glory, one that has an eternal impact. Lord, as we turn now to this time of communion, we were reminded of your shed blood, we are reminded of your broken body. May we, Lord, again, just be preparing our hearts, holding our hands up, and saying, Lord, use these. I, I, I'm here to be used of you. God, I got hands, I got feet, I've got skills, I've got abilities that you have uniquely given me. Lord, I just want to put them on the altar. I just want to say, God, that my life belongs to me, to you. Lord, you are master. You are Lord. So God, we just give you this space. Holy Spirit, work and stir, move our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.